Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of domestic violence, the sexual abuse of minors, and attempted murder. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Anne Cam felt tears well up in her eyes. She'd just received the worst news of her life, and from a priest of all people. It must have been hard in those moments for her to know who and what to trust. But one thing was clear. She definitely couldn't believe in her 40-year-old husband, William Cam. He'd betrayed her, cheated on her with a 17-year-old in their own house while their children slept down the hall. It was a violation of everything that was supposed to be sacred about marriage. And that wasn't even the hardest pill to swallow, because eventually Anne had to acknowledge the recent changes in her nanny. The girl was pregnant. The situation was impossible to tolerate, but when it came to William Cam's depravity, Anne had only seen the tip of the iceberg. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, its leader, and its followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This week, we're examining the life of William Cam, leader of the Order of St. Charbel. Cam, also known as Little Pebble, presents himself as Catholic, but the church doesn't recognize his group or its fringe beliefs. Today, we'll discuss Cam's early life, his twisted betrayal of his first wife, and how he leveraged miraculous claims to recruit over a hundred followers in New South Wales, Australia. Next week, we'll delve deeper into Cam's dark side, uncovering his failed doomsday prophecies, teenage wives, and convictions on charges of underage sexual abuse. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com running. New Balance. Run your way. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. William Cam claims that he's overflowing with the Lord's grace. By 1998, he'd reportedly received more than 5,000 prophecies from God. That number has only increased since. Cam believes he's been chosen to unite all believers around the world and prepare humanity for the second coming of Christ. He claims that because he's a prophet, he's been dogged by lies and persecution for decades. 
But persecution might be an understatement, as William Cam has been convicted of sexual assault twice in a court of law. And a long look at his story is more likely to leave one with dark questions than divine answers. Before we go any further, we should note that most of the information about William Cam's early life comes from his autobiography, The Little Pebble, The Last Pope. Among other things, Cam claims that he's personally spoken with the Virgin Mary hundreds of times, says he bears stigmata wounds that are invisible, and has predicted that one day he would head the Catholic Church. So with that in mind, some of the details about his background should be taken with a grain of salt. As Cam tells it, his childhood was an uphill battle. Originally born in Germany, his family immigrated to Australia in 1954, when he was just four years old. He grew up with his mother, stepfather, and younger sister in the small town of Renmark. Their first home sported a dirt floor and no real furniture. Neither of his parents spoke much English, barely managing to scrape by as laborers on the local vineyards. The financial difficulties drove Cam's stepfather, Hans, to drink. And when he was drunk, Hans could sometimes turn violent, stirring fear in the rest of the family, including Cam. The violence continued for almost a decade, until Cam was 13. Sometime in 1963, Cam, his mother, and his sister moved to a suburb of Melbourne to escape the abuse. His mother divorced Hans a year later. But it seems like Cam's stepfather couldn't let them get away without delivering a parting blow. One day, a few months after the divorce, Hans showed up to their new house blind drunk. He forced his way inside and screamed at Cam's mother, threatening to kill her and her new boyfriend. Despite how young he was, Cam stepped up to protect his mom. He pulled Hans aside to de-escalate the situation. Though he was terrified, Cam forced himself to listen to his stepfather rant and rave, until Hans finally passed out at the kitchen table. As soon as he was asleep, Cam's mother packed up her kids and fled. Thanks to the help of her boyfriend, they were able to skip town. This time, the family settled in Wollongong in New South Wales. Just like that, Cam's life was uprooted again, and the man to blame was the same one who'd raised him. After the move, Cam's life gradually quieted down again. He started high school and made some new friends. But deep down, he felt adrift. He yearned for guidance, maybe something to replace the father figure he'd lost in Hans. So he started looking for God. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Cam had been raised Catholic, but his family had never been very devout. It's hard to pinpoint the exact reason for his sudden interest in the church, but it might have been a way to reconcile his traumatic relationship with his stepfather. A 2008 study published in the Developmental Psychology Journal examined devout Catholic priests, nuns, and laypeople through the lens of parental attachment. The authors noted that previous research found a strong link between insecure parent attachment and religious fervor. In other words, some people seek comfort in religion to compensate for a turbulent or distant relationship with their parents. But this study also came up with some intriguing results when comparing Catholic priests and nuns' relationships with their parents to their ideas of God. While most who had a secure attachment to loving parents also described a secure attachment to a loving God, this was not always the case. 
The authors also discovered a marginally significant relationship between those who had a loving mother and also envisioned a controlling God. So for some devout Catholics, love and control may be intimately connected. In the case of Cam's own mother, she wasn't exactly in favor of her son's new fascination with religion. While she didn't stop him from reading about the lives of Catholic saints or saying his prayers, she didn't do much to support his trips to Mass either. Yet even without her backing, something about Catholicism deeply resonated with Cam. Whatever the reason, he became more involved in the church as a teen and expressed interest in becoming a priest himself. Unfortunately, his passion was tainted. According to Cam, he became an altar boy at 15, and a priest assaulted him the following year. The Catholic Church has disputed this detail, claiming that Cam was actually 23 when the incident took place. The Sydney Morning Herald reported that the offending priest was counseled, but was not removed from his position as a result. No matter when the abuse occurred, it must have colored Cam's dreams of joining the clergy. At some point, he dropped out of high school and his other ambitions fell to the back burner. But his connection to the church remained strong. Cam was still captivated by the saints and the word of God. Eventually, around the age of 17, he started attending mass each and every day. Then, one morning, everything changed. On Easter Sunday, 1968, 17-year-old Cam had a vision. As he knelt in the cathedral contemplating God's love, he was enveloped by a pure white cloud. A deep voice resonated from the mist, and Cam knew the Lord was speaking to him. The voice told him that he had been chosen to become a leader and a saint in the church. His mission would cause him great suffering, but he was charged with starting a family to serve as a holy example for the world. He needed to show true believers how to dedicate their lives to God. That might have been enough for most, but it was only the beginning for William Cam. The Lord also told him that he would witness the second coming of Jesus and fight the Antichrist himself. In all, Cam claimed he spoke with God for an hour straight before the divine cloud faded away. Despite how difficult and dangerous his new purpose sounded, he was overcome with joy. Cam told at least two clergy members about the apparition, but was met with lukewarm responses. While the priest didn't reject his visions outright, they did suggest that he pray and contemplate things more before doing anything drastic. And for the next several years, it seems Cam took their advice. He continued to have mystical experiences, but he couldn't make sense of the visions and didn't share them with others. He became more involved in his local church and visited several other religious groups as well. Yet he still felt that his destiny was to be married and have a holy family of his own. He was stuck. Instead of planning for his glorious destiny, he was dogged by his troubled past. Around 1972, his stepfather suddenly contacted him again, claiming to be wealthy and offering Cam a job. Cam went to meet his father, but didn't find the warm reception he was hoping for. Instead, some acquaintances warned Cam he was in mortal danger. They said Hans had hatched a plot to lure Cam to a graveyard and kill him. For a long time, Cam pondered what to do next. He worried Hans would go to the ends of the earth to hunt him down. His days might be numbered. But when he prayed about it, Cam recalled the glorious destiny that awaited him. He decided that all he could do was trust in God. He had to completely surrender his life to the Lord. If his death was God's will, 
Then, so be it. Soon afterward, Hans asked Cam to come with him to visit a grave. It was exactly what Cam had been warned about. Yet he still accepted the invitation. He told Hans that he knew what was coming, and he wasn't worried. He claimed God was watching over them both. He wouldn't be harmed unless it was part of the Lord's plan. With just a few words, Cam broke through his stepfather's years of hatred and resentment. Hans fell to his knees and confessed that he'd attempted to kill Cam more than once in the past. Now he swore he would leave his stepson alone once and for all. Soon after that, 23-year-old Cam started working in Sydney. He toiled in a factory by day and ran a religious organization in his off time, called the Marian Work of Atonement. The group was formed with the loose mission of simply offering penance to God through a devotion to the Virgin Mary. It was very likely small in scope. But there's no question that Cam was busier than ever during these years. He was also a member of several youth groups and spiritual movements. Eventually, he founded another prayer group devoted to the Virgin Mary and organized retreats for up to 80 people at a time. Over the next decade, he continued to worship and receive visions. He says he saw Jesus and spoke directly to the Virgin Mary, saints, and other apparitions. All the while, in the back of his mind, he remembered his mission to create a holy family. And to do that, he would need a wife. Her name was Anne. They met in 1980 through her aunt, who was Cam's longtime friend, and the two felt an instant spark. Anne was a lapsed Catholic and divorced, but gradually returned to the faith once she started dating Cam. By 1982, they were officially engaged. But it didn't take long for the relationship to be tested. That same year, 32-year-old Cam was forced to declare bankruptcy for unknown reasons. And that wasn't the only source of tension. Cam was also becoming more vocal about his miraculous visions. For her part, Anne believed her husband had spoken directly to God. But it may have been difficult for her to understand when Cam started to write to his local bishop repeatedly, ranting about recent changes to the Nicene Creed, a central prayer in the Catholic Church. It was one of the first signs of a true rift between Cam and the official church, and that was a major change. By this point, the word devout didn't even begin to describe the depths of Cam's faith. He'd been going to Mass daily for years and spending most of his free time meditating on the Word of God. His lengthy letters, however, failed to have the effect he'd hoped for. The new Holy Creed wasn't changed to accommodate his suggestions. Still, Cam remained resolute. Nothing could stop him from reforming the Catholic Church in his own way. No bishop could make him question his mission. And the following year, another significant vision showed Cam he was on the right track. This time, the Virgin Mary appeared to Cam in front of his prayer group in a bush clearing outside the town of Naura. And even more miraculously, Mary didn't come alone. She brought Pope Paul VI and Moses as guest speakers. Cam was enraptured. Pope Paul confirmed that Cam was a warrior of Christ and gave him the name Little Pebble. After that, Cam openly spread the word about his visions and gave public sermons in the same grove where Mary appeared. He was directly defying the advice of his elders in the church, and it was only a matter of time before he faced the backlash. Coming up, William Cam strikes out on his own. Sort of. Hi, I'm Christine Schieffer. And I'm M. Schultz. We're the hosts of Rituals, the new Spotify original from Parcast. 
If you've heard our podcast and that's what we drink, you know we are no strangers to true crime and the paranormal. We're also into the occult uh, to chat about, not to join, but, you know, to, to learn and educate. <laughs> Every Monday on Rituals, we're journeying through mystifying stories of sorcery, alchemy, Satanism, and more, and trying to determine if the dark arts of the past impact us today. Like weather witches? Who were they? Or the Fountain of Youth? Address, please. <laughs> Don't forget about werewolf trials, Em. Objection, Christine. Let's not give too much away. And instead, let's tell everyone to follow our new podcast, Rituals, free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Now back to the story. In his late 20s and early 30s, William Cam practically lived for the Catholic Church. When he wasn't working, he was either at Mass, prayer groups, or reading about theology on his own. Yet despite his clear devotion, Cam had trouble getting the hierarchy of the church to listen to him. He believed that he'd spoken directly to God, as well as the Virgin Mary. The Lord had set him on a mission to show the world the path to heaven. To Cam, it was a bona fide miracle. But the church didn't see things that way. Even so, Cam hoped to eventually be accepted by the Holy See. He considered himself to be a true Catholic and didn't want to split off from the church. He was determined to spread his message through it instead. To that end, he created a slew of prayer groups in cities throughout Australia, including Sydney, Wollongong, and Campbelltown. In time, he recruited a handful of regular attendees, especially in the town of Nowra in New South Wales. He'd attracted a lot of attention there after claiming the Virgin Mary had appeared to him in a clearing. The owners of the five-acre property allowed him to give public sermons there every month where he claimed to speak directly to Mary and transmit her words to the audience. The church, however, didn't take kindly to Cam's initiative. In their mind, he was spreading nonsense about false miracles. They circulated a letter warning Cam's followers that they did not approve of his message. Cam countered by, in his words, becoming a thorn in their side. He made frequent complaints to the bishop whenever he saw priests breaking the laws of the church. Apparently, he saw that kind of behavior often and was never shy about raising a stink over it. He was unshakable in his belief that he was on the right path. So, though it angered the church he loved, he continued to spread his message far and wide. Nothing could silence Cam. And in time, his prophecies became more urgent. 
1984, the Virgin Mary revealed to Cam that his true purpose was even grander than he'd imagined. Apparently, he was destined to unite the prophets of the world to create an army of truth to fight for heaven. The new quest coincided with the birth of Cam and Anne's first child, Joshua, and both events gave Cam the kick he needed. Now he had a family to support, in addition to fulfilling his divine purpose. He traveled frantically from one prayer group to another, meeting with priests and followers to spread news about his latest visions. Cam's audience slowly grew, but so did his detractors. His main base of operations continued to be in Naura, where he sermonized to audiences ranging between 50 and 1,000 people. Eventually, though, the neighbors complained about the gathering so much that the city council stepped in to stop them. They even tried to fine Cam if he continued the meetings, which he described as religious persecution. To avoid paying, he stormed the council chambers with a group of his followers and some local reporters in tow. The stunt prompted the city to back down, but it was about the only time the press was on Cam's side. By 1984, his supposed visions and small following made national news. As Cam remembered it, the newspaper articles about him were almost uniformly negative. He claimed he was targeted mercilessly. And on top of it all, he continued to face opposition from the church. He hadn't given up on getting official acknowledgement of his miraculous visions, but never found anyone willing to take him seriously. The solution, as usual, came in the form of an apparition. The Virgin Mary begged Cam several times to go and see the Pope about his problems. Because apparently there was another important part of his destiny that she'd failed to mention thus far. Not only was Cam meant to fight the Antichrist, he would do it by becoming the last Pope to ever head the Catholic Church. For whatever reason, Cam had ignored Mary's pleas for some time. It wasn't until late 1984 that he was spurred to action by a local woman named Georgette Harb, who had heard about Cam's message and his recent troubles with the Catholic Church, and she had been seeing some apparitions of her own. She said that the obscure Catholic Saint Charbel had appeared to her to pass on an important message. He wanted Georgette to go with Cam to the Vatican as soon as possible. Though Cam was pretty knowledgeable about the saints, he claimed he'd never heard of Charbel before meeting Georgette. But not long afterward, the truth of Georgette's words were confirmed with, you guessed it, yet another vision. This time, Cam was instructed to found a religious order called the Order of St. Charbel. His to-do list was getting intimidating. Cam had always believed he was destined for great things. For the past 20 years, however, it seemed like he was stumbling around in the dark. But now, things were finally falling into place. It was time to go straight to the top of the Catholic Church. Cam traveled to the Vatican with Georgette and attempted to gain an audience with His Holiness. Unsurprisingly, his first attempts were unsuccessful, prompting a pep talk from the spirit of Saint Charbel himself. The saint told Cam he had to find 31 Australian priests and unite with them in order to speak with the Pope. Charbel ended his message with a warning to tread carefully. Apparently, three of the four priests Cam had met on his first day in the Vatican were actually demons. The next day, armed with new wisdom, Cam resumed his quixotic quest to personally meet one of the most powerful figures in the world. But according to Cam, most people he spoke to laughed in his face. They essentially told him there was no way a random Australian could pop in for a private audience with the Holy Father. 
Making matters even worse, demons were everywhere, just looking for ways to ruin his day. That night, when Cam sat down to eat, a belligerent man accosted him for no apparent reason. Luckily for Cam, the guy was ejected from the restaurant. A vision later confirmed that the belligerent man had also been a demon. Cam and his followers may have believed that he was constantly dogged by evil spirits who wanted nothing more than to inconvenience him. But it's also possible that Cam was suffering from paranoia, feeling that any minor obstacle he faced was part of an organized plot against him. And because of his spiritual visions and devout Catholicism, he often blamed demons for his problems. If he was falling prey to paranoid ideas, it wouldn't have been unusual. According to surveys, around 10 to 15% of people experience regular paranoid thoughts. Many of them aren't clinically diagnosed with any mental illness. Researchers also find that the most extreme paranoid thoughts might build up gradually over time. What start out as plausible anxieties can eventually give way to convoluted conspiracies. In Cam's case, when paranoia was combined with his pre-existing religious fervor, this could explain why his visions grew in scale and complexity over time. But thanks to his faith that everything would work out according to God's will, Cam remained confident that he could complete his mission. And a couple of days later, a miraculous event actually did occur. During a public audience in front of thousands, Cam managed to slip the Pope a note which read, I have been sent here by the Blessed Mother, and I need to see you. The next day, he was invited to a private Mass, attended by exactly 31 people. After Mass was over, Cam claimed he spoke to the Pope, who confirmed that Cam's miraculous visions were authentic. For years afterward, he told his audiences that the Pope was on his side, and that the Order of St. Charbel had backing of the Vatican. The Catholic Church, however, denies his account. They claim that while Cam did meet the Pope, the Holy Father did not approve his mystical experiences or grant them any credence. The Church has since repeatedly rejected Cam's messages and prophecies, calling them not consistent with the Word of God and the constant teaching of the Church. At the time, though, Cam was over the moon at getting the audience he'd so desperately desired. But he didn't have long to rest on his laurels. There was still so much to do. In 1986, Cam took the first real steps toward establishing the Order of St. Charbel. His dream was to create a self-sufficient community with schools and stores run by the faithful. But at that time, he had neither the resources nor the following for anything so grand. Instead, the new community officially welcomed only two members, Albert and Heather Cook. It was a small step forward, but Cam wasted no time in tapping into his followers' resources. He informed the Cooks that God had ordered him to travel the world to recruit more followers and pay his respects at holy sites. The couple pooled their money to fund several international trips for Cam over the next year. He first traveled to Singapore, then to India, and finally bounced around Europe to see the sites and meet with Catholic officials. It doesn't appear that much came of these meetings, though he did gain some contacts higher up in the church. And the little pebble was nothing if not persistent, especially when he didn't have to foot the bill. He took several more overseas trips in the following years. When he wasn't traveling, he continued to sermonize throughout Australia. He spoke about his visions and warned his audiences of the coming Armageddon. He still said his order had the official backing of the Vatican, 
and claimed that he would unite all Christians under his personal banner of conservative Catholicism. His claims no doubt stunned many in his audience, but others were convinced by his passion. Every month back in Naura, at least a few members of his audience would experience visions themselves. Some even claimed the sun would spin in front of their eyes. All the commotion once again drew the attention of the church. In March of 1986, Bishop William Murray told a Catholic media outlet, in the strongest possible terms, that Camp's visions should be rejected. It was the first time the Catholic Church had reprimanded Cam so publicly, and it was highly unusual for them to take such a step. Typically, they preferred to ignore fringe religious groups, but Cam was a special case because he often claimed he represented the official Catholic Church. The bishop recognized that many of Cam's acolytes were sincere Catholics, and he believed they had been led astray by lies. He urged them all to stop listening to Cam and rely on official church teachings instead. But the new round of media attention had an unexpected effect. Cam's influence only grew. That year, he took a trip to the Philippines, where he was reportedly welcomed at the airport by thousands. He also took the time to tell a cardinal there that if they paraded that statue of the Virgin Mary along with the Eucharist through the streets of Manila, then communism would disappear from the country in no time. Slowly but surely, William Cam was making an impact. His reach wasn't huge by any stretch of the imagination, but he consistently drew dozens of people to his sermons back at home, had the attention of a massive organization like the Catholic Church, and was steadily growing a devoted following. But to really turn his operation into something sustainable, Cam needed more money, so he started officially soliciting donations for the Order of St. Charbel. In his autobiography, he wrote, as Our Lady's mission progressed and expanded swiftly in the early 1980s, many donations were directed to our office, so much so that I became concerned as how to deal with the matter. He goes on to explain that he sought advice from friends who told him to form a shell company that could be approved as a charity. But the shell company wasn't enough for him. Since he couldn't take money directly from his charity, he also set up a private account. That way, anyone who wanted to donate directly to him could do so. As he noted, it is acceptable by law that any person can receive donations tax-free. With more of the logistics in place, Cam focused on widening the scope of his order. But he still hadn't forgotten his original mission. He was to show the world what a true holy family looked like. And the more he thought about it, the more he felt something, God perhaps, pulling him away from his wife Anne. Up to that point, she stood beside him through thick and thin. But Cam perhaps wondered if she was the right woman to handle what the Lord had planned for him next. Coming up, a scandal rocks William Cam's household, along with the entire order of St. Charbel. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. 
Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the story. In the early 1990s, William Cam was on the cusp of moving up in the world. It had taken time, over two decades since his first miraculous vision. But now that he was approaching middle age, he felt his dreams finally coming into focus. He had the tiny beginnings of a religious movement on his hands, and his sermons were starting to bring in donations. Cam felt like he might be able to support his family and follow his destiny at the same time. But that wasn't all that was changing in his life. In between his work at home in Australia, Cam had taken to traveling the world to try and spread his divine message, thanks to the financial help of his followers, that is. He especially liked to travel to Germany, where he was born. And on one of these trips, Cam noticed a 17-year-old girl named Bettina at several of his talks. Cam already had a wife and four children, but soon after meeting Bettina, he supposedly received a new vision. The Virgin Mary told him he would come to know the girl better in the future. Then when he attended Mass with Bettina's family, Cam saw an apparition of a dove carrying two wedding rings in its beak. If that wasn't clear enough, two weeks later, on November 14, 1990, he had a third miraculous vision. This time, Jesus Christ allegedly gave Cam the following message three times in a row. Son, your wife Anne is going to die and go to heaven, and Bettina, the young woman, will become your wife. Cam had just been told his deepest love and mother of his children was going to die. He claimed in his biography that he was crushed by the revelation, but he didn't tell Anne about it. Instead, by December of 1990, 40-year-old William Cam had told Bettina what he'd seen. He proposed to the 17-year-old in secret, and she accepted. In time, angels revealed to Cam that his wife would pass away in April, but Cam couldn't wait that long. He held a secret ceremony in Germany with Bettina's family, a priest, and another seer in March, and was mystically married to the girl. Cam insists that mystical marriage, as he calls it, is not the same as an actual marriage. He wrote, In earthly terms, this marriage was merely a bond between two people, having no inference of legality. Still, he kept the wedding concealed from his actual wife. And afterward, Bettina moved to Australia to become Cam's nanny and care for his children. All the while, she expected Anne to die in April 1991. But the month came and went, and Cam's wife survived. The spirits didn't explain the change of plans to Cam. When a priest who attended his mystical marriage asked why the prophecy had failed, he had no excuse. So, likely feeling guilty about deceiving Anne, the priest told her all about Bettina. Anne was appalled. Not only had her 40-year-old husband held a pretend wedding with a 17-year-old behind her back, he'd also repeatedly predicted her imminent death. Practically everyone else in his inner circle knew. But even that wasn't the worst of it. Because as it turned out, Bettina was pregnant. It was too much to take. Though Anne had stood behind her husband for years, she could no longer stay with him. She left Cam behind, took the children, and moved to another city. Sometime after that, Cam's mystical marriage started to look pretty similar to a regular marriage from the outside. Though he remained legally married to Anne, Bettina took Anne's place and lived as his wife. 
Things were rocky at first. Camp discovered that Bettina had been abused as a child and claimed she was wild and undomesticated. She was unable to speak English and was forced to rely on Cam for everything. It was a dark time for everyone in the household. Cam lost several followers, including the priest who'd confessed to Anne. Many found his behavior reprehensible for obvious reasons. But his community as a whole survived. Many accepted Cam's excuses. This might have been because the Order of St. Charbel was somewhat unique in how it recruited followers. University of Sydney researchers Shelley Wickham and Christopher Hartney wrote about William Cam's tactics and why they stand out as unusual, even among other fringe religious leaders. Wickham and Hartney explained that one common school of thought in psychology distinguishes between institutional and personal authority. Typically, leaders like Cam rely on personal authority alone, falling back on their charisma to win over their followers because they lack institutional support. But Cam is a special case. Many of his acolytes were drawn to the Order of St. Charbel because they believed it had institutional support from the Catholic Church. When they eventually learned that wasn't true, some stayed anyway, because by that point they had absorbed Cam's dogma. So while institutional authority got people to step through the door, Cam's charisma kept them coming back. Cam was likely very aware of this, and over the next several years, he stuck with what he knew. He traveled the world giving talks and soliciting donations. He found his pitch appealed most to the elderly, who liked his more traditional conservative brand of Catholicism. Over time, his once tiny community prospered. The Sydney Morning Herald reported in 1993 that Cam claimed he had millions of followers, but the number of believers truly committed to his cause was likely closer to 120. At least some of those people lived on a commune outside of the town of Naura. It was the same property where Cam had gotten into trouble with the city council in the 80s. All those years later, he was still holding monthly meetings there. But by 93, things had changed quite a bit. Now, the acreage boasted paved roads, a chapel, and even a school. Cam had his own little kingdom, and he exercised significant control over the lives of his inner circle. For example, he insisted on handling all the money himself. Though he was technically operating a charity, he didn't allow a board of directors or outside body to monitor and direct the order's spending. According to his former accountant, Cam also claimed that the Virgin Mary had told him he needed absolute control over the finances but the system created an immense power imbalance between Cam and his acolytes. Not only did they depend on Cam for their basic needs, including food and shelter, most had nothing to fall back on in the event of an emergency. Before moving to his community, Cam encouraged his followers to donate all their worldly possessions to him. That meant they were essentially at his mercy on the compound. And because some of them were elderly, they likely had additional demands on their health. It wouldn't have been easy for them to move away or find a job and live on their own. But Cam wasn't too concerned with the immense responsibility of caring for over a hundred people. What he really cared about was himself. The entire community had been created to help him achieve his divine destiny in the first place. Over time, he would become even more arrogant, twisting his concept of a holy family into a license to torment and abuse.
Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of William Cam's story. We'll learn how Cam exploited his influence and preyed on his followers, going from a minor religious curiosity to a dangerous serial predator. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Motion. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Cults was written by Tara Wells. With writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. Fact-checking by Claire Cronin. And research by Chelsea Wood and Brian Petrus. Cult stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Werewolves, witches, and Arthur Conan Doyle? Oh my! Sounds like fascinating topics to discuss on our new show, Rituals, Christine. You know what, Em? It sure does. Every Monday on Rituals, join us as we explore the evolution of spiritualism and the occult through stories, practices, and the impact on modern culture. If you've heard our podcast and that's why we drink, this is the perfect pairing for you. And if you haven't, go give us a try. Follow our Spotify original from Parcast, Rituals. Listen free only on Spotify. Spotify.